Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gideon Rose with us with Foreign Affairs uh, Magazine. It's a Pentagon issue. It's a military issue. It's a domestic international relations issue. What's the one article Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump should read in your new issue? Well, I would say the two articles. I'm not going to take two of them. Uh, one is by Mike O'Hanlon and David Petraeus about <clears throat> the state of our military. and It's called Our Awesome Military and How It Can Be Even Better. Uh, and basically what they say is the military <coughs> is in pretty good shape now, but we need to invest strategically for the long term, and that requires getting rid of sequestration and budgeting over the long term in ways that Congress currently isn't doing. The other thing is a piece by Rashid Ganoushi, the Islamist leader in Tunisia, whose party, Ennahda, has just changed from being formerly Islamist to being Muslim Democrats. And if, if the Arab Spring has had one bright spot, right. it's Tunisia. I agree. And so if we can keep the Tunisian positive experiment going, they now have the hopes of moderate Islam and democracy resting on them. And this is great, Gideon. We could completely rip up the script just with the first question we've got. Let's go back to Michael O'Hanlon, who, to me, within your game, owns the phrase hard power. Define for our audience the soft power, hard power future of our military and our foreign policy. So... Hard power is about the actual resources, military forces in being, and strong, hard things you can do. Soft power is about the power of your example, getting people to want what you want, as Joe and I originally said. The United States actually has a hell of a lot of both, hard power and soft power. The, what we need to do going forward is keeping our hard power intact with sensible policies and not doing dumb things that tarnish our example and screw things up that undermine uh, the power of... Uh, the model we set for the world. When we show the flag in the South China Sea, I would suggest that's an application of both soft power and hard power. But is there a risk there that wasn't there for Mr. Roosevelt uh, 100-plus years ago? Yes, the challenge is not just showing the flag, but in service of what? So to the extent that we can say we are the defenders not just of our own national interests, but of the rule of law, of international order and stability, of essentially the law of the sea, even though we haven't ratified the treaty. We, we make our power legitimate in the eyes of the world when we defend interests beyond our own. This is what Trump doesn't get. He sees the world as a zero-sum place. In fact, since World War II, foreign policy has been a team sport. We play on behalf of our allies as well as ourselves. Right. That's what we're doing. And our power is important and legitimate because it benefits not just us, but other nations okay. that want to I lectured to on this at Berkeley College. Good morning to everybody at Berkeley College. This is not Berkeley by the Bay there across from the Oakland A's and the Giants. This is Berkeley College in New York. A great set of kids from, I think, like 15 nations. And I took them back to 1941, Atlantic Charter. And then we wander through George Bush Sr., GATT, Uruguay, and all the rest of it. Where is our new trade power? Secretary Clinton talks about fair trade. I'm not sure what kind of trade Mr. Trump talks about. Fold in our business trade with our foreign policy. So the fact is that practically everybody who deals with trade thinks that we need TPP, we need to move trade forward, 
and we just can't talk about that now because of the domestic politics of the issue. Raising trade policy now in an electoral cycle like this one with a populist wave will inevitably produce even more strident calls from all the candidates to restrict trade because that's the political reality in the U.S. for the next three months. So don't talk about trade at all. And then eventually, after the election, let's hope people are sensible enough in Congress to move something like TPP forward, even if it has some modifications. Are we becoming an America of Wendell Wilkie, back when we were innocent before December 7th? 1941? No, no. I think American foreign... Look, the story that hasn't been told is the extent to which American foreign policy has been pretty darn constant for 75 years. And essentially what we're trying to do is reverse the policies of the 1930s in which individual uncoordinated right. actions allowed economic crisis to spiral and allowed political aggression to triumph. We play on behalf of a team. If we can continue the policies we've put in place to make the world more global, right. more integrated, more linked, we will benefit no. and our allies Maybe Jacob Viner in his classic mercantile paper would call it mercantilist international uh, relations. If you're just joining us, Gideon Rose with us in celebration of the new foreign affairs. I'll cut to the chase. It's the single magazine to read. they got a whole great website thing going Get a subscription. It's, it's big enough to hold your martini up. It's got big print, and there's always two or three articles that make you dramatically wiser about what we're doing today. You mentioned Tunisia. I totally agree. I believe the gentleman won the Nobel Peace Prize or whatever a, a year ago. Why can't el-Sisi in Egypt do a Tunisia. That's what I don't get. Because he doesn't want to, because he's fundamentally an authoritarian. You have a deep state uh, in, in some of these countries like Egypt that has reasserted itself. It wants authoritarian control. It doesn't want popular uh, will represented. It doesn't want uh, uh, <clears throat> moderate Islamism or any kind of Islamism anywhere near power. And Sisi essentially is trying to resurrect the Mubarak regime. Uh, and that it looks like he's succeeded in the short term, but in the long run, I think that's not the way to go. When we, when we look at Islamism, which is a loaded phrase, I think of Megden Desai's great work on this at LSE and many, many, Ken Pollock and many, many others over the years. Most Americans are saying, that's great, but I just read that article about somebody on an airplane who had somebody thrown up because they looked like a little too much Islamism right now. Can we have a benevolent Islamism that will make America and, frankly, other nations, France, comfortable? Yes, well, this is the pernicious thing about, uh, one of the most pernicious things about the Trump candidacy, which is the Muslim ban idea, because it's not about religion per se. It's about particular strands within a very, very large religious community uh, that are deeply radical. So the United States cannot and should not and does not have any problem with Islamism per se, uh, the, even the, letting Islamic values and ideas influence politics. Uh, it does have a problem with violence. It has a problem with radicalism. Right. And the challenge is, are there movements in the Muslim world that right. are deeply religious but are not hostile to the rule of law, not hostile to democracy? And right. places like Tunisia are saying yes. We had a brilliant conversation a few days ago with Nicholas Burns, one of our public servants. It was about his Wellesley High School outside Boston. I could talk to you about Horace Mann here in, uh, in New York. The Republican elites of the Gideon Rose world are moving in mass to quiet or to support Secretary Clinton. Do you perceive a foreign policy expertise or industry that could assist President Trump? 
no truly significant foreign policy community or expertise exists. has attracted, has, has turned to Trump up to the election and won't until the election happens. Should Trump somehow win and then say, look, I've got to govern, the calculus would shift and there may be some of these uh, moderate Republican types who would take positions in a Trump administration should he actually win. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but that would be to serve the country and protect it from the boss, as it were. Uh, and that's right. not going to happen before that. Never enough time. Gideon Rose, thank you so much. Congratulations. It's a domestic issue. I love when they do this. It's a domestic issue on international relations. It foreign affairs. I know the kids, the college kids are home. You're like, okay, it's August 12th. When do they go back to school? Like, is it this Friday or next Friday? And she says, no, it's September 6th. And you go, OMG, give them an issue, a foreign affairs magazine, and you just say, shut up and read this or there's no more money. Thanks. That's great, how you great interview with Marty Dempsey in it, by the way. Yeah, with Marty, well, that, that's very timely as well. He was quite something on the uh, generals at the convention. This is Bloomberg. This is a special treat. There are economists that own franchises buried in uh, James Gorman's Morgan Stanley in the hallways and down the office corridors. Ted Weissman holds court on productivity. He writes the single best notes I know on productivity, and he's killed it the last couple days on what he calls a grievously disappointing report. Ted, what was the biggest shock of the productivity report of a few days ago? Well, I mean, I guess at this point it's kind of hard to be negatively surprised by the productivity numbers because they've been coming in so poorly for so long. But uh, we actually managed to get a downside surprise in the Q2 numbers that came out uh, the other day. Uh, we were looking for a slightly positive number. Instead, it, the, uh, the Q2 number came in down 0.5, which ended up being the third straight uh, negative reading that we've seen on productivity growth, which manages to exacerbate what's been uh, a persistently poor trend throughout the post-recession period. The specific surprise right. in Q2 was hours worked were, were stronger than was in, than was implied by the employment report. Did your study force Ellen Zetner to change her global American call, her greater American call? Well, what, what we did was a year ago when we extended our forecast horizon to 2017, we took a broader look at looking at a U.S. economy that was at the, you know at this point not at full employment probably, but getting pretty close at a 5% unemployment rate. So you look out one year, two years, three years at that starting point, the question then becomes less uh, less a cyclical outlook and more <laughs> thinking about how fast can this economy right. grow on a sustained basis going forward from that level. And as we looked at the trend in productivity to that point in 2015, the drivers that we saw going forward, uh, we materially lowered our outlook for how fast the economy could grow right. back then to 1.5%, which at the time we got a lot of pushback from. But I think as we've seen the numbers continue to come yeah. in to the weak side, it's it's been validated. Yeah, I, I give you the highest credit for that, and particularly mm -hmm. Ellen Zentner's courage to really mm -hmm. go against the grain a year mm -hmm. and a half ago. Folks, this is going to be a huge surveillance study going into the autumn. Productivity, how it links into profitability, how it links into our standard of living as well. I, I, Ted, just because of time, I want to touch it here and come back and talk about how technology filters through to technological progress, call it total factor productivity, how technology filters through to the labor dynamic and how it filters through to the capital dynamic. Let's start with the least talked about. The technology 
helps our capital be more efficient. Where do we stand now on our capital productivity, given all the new whiz-bang tools we've got? Well, we've seen the, the so-called total factor productivity that, that you discussed. That's the growth of the economy after you've accounted for inputs and labor and capital. So it's, it's basically a measure of techno- productivity-enhancing technological change. And what we've seen in the past five, ten years now has been relatively sluggish growth, uh, not, but not sluggish really relative to where we were before the tech bubble. You look at the ten years through 2015 or five years, the, the, the growth in so-called total factor productivity, technological-enhancing product, uh, uh, productivity-enhancing technological change, has grown 0.4% a year, which is very disappointing compared to 1.5%, 1.6% well, we were growing in the tech bubble. But it's not different from the 80s or the 70s or the 90s before that. But quickly here, capital mm-hmm. services per hour worked. Mm-hmm. What part of technology has forced us to such lousy capital investment? Well, I, th- I think you look at the bust that we've seen in CapEx, which has been unprecedented as far as, as you mentioned, the capital services per hour work, capital deepening. That's, that's an additional component of productivity growth. That's been net negative now for, for six solid years, which we've never seen anything like that in prior U.S. history. And I think you look at that as a reflection of, as, as Governor Mark Carney of the Bank of England described it in, his, in a recent speech, a sort of post, uh, post-crisis economic uh, uh, stress disorder where you have extremely high levels of economic policy yeah. uncertainty, global uncertainty. Well, Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York, and we are honored to bring you Ted Weissman of Morgan Stanley. His work on productivity is absolutely uh, definitive. When you're at a bar, Ted, not that you would ever do that, and everybody's got their iPhone or maybe a few Samsungs in their hand, do you for even a second hesitate and go, I really can't measure productivity? Well, I, th- I think that's an important point, because if you look at the, the focus of tech investment these days compared to the, to the 90s when we had a big boom in, in productivity and, and tech was driving that, I think a lot of the investment that we're getting these days is that kind of social media, smartphone apps that's not even really necessarily aimed at enhancing productivity. It's leisure enhancing, makes people's lives more enjoyable maybe, but it doesn't make them more productive at work. It doesn't make the economy able to produce more necessarily. So it's a fundamentally different kind of, of tech investment uh, upside that we're seeing this time around that, that is, I think, consistent with it. We're not getting the kind of uh, productivity um, boost that we got from the 90s when we were building out the Internet infrastructure. Ted, is the, is the UK any different? We have a huge productivity problem here. Mm-hmm. Are the fundamentals the same? Do they mirror the U.S., or is there something else going on? Well, the common, the common uh, thread across countries has been just how bad CapEx has been. If you don't get capital investment, you don't increase uh, capital equipment per worker, you, you hurt productivity growth. The interesting divergence between the U.S. and the rest of the world is that the U.S. did see this large acceleration, temporary acceleration, but quite large in, in the second half of the 90s and the early half of the 2000s that the rest of the world did not see. And we have not seen the catch-up yet to that um, so-called technological frontier that the U.S. had set in, in the 90s, and we're still waiting for some catch-up in Europe and, and other parts of the world to that that didn't come through. But the, the world globally looks uh, quite sluggish from these, from these uh, on TFP and on, and on capital investment. Right, and the problem is, how do you fix it? Even Mark Carney mm-hmm. talked about productivity once again yeah, what, he's 10 very days good. ago, right? He's very and, good. Yeah, and he was saying, look, the UK trading relationship with Europe but also the rest of the world, along with productivity growth, are really the biggest determinants of long-term economic prosperity after Brexit. How does he fix it? Well, I think the, the primary thing that, that we can get going on the more cyclical, it's been long-lasting, but cyclical side of it is just how bad the, the investment has been. 
So what can we do there? It's, it's a difficult problem because it seems that uncertainty has been a key uh, depressant on investment. And better policy maybe can help that. Fiscal policy has a role to play, mm-hmm. maybe structural policies. Yeah. But there's just been this cloud of uncertainty that has kept companies and, and consumers as well very cautious in their spending. And just don't, we're not seeing that okay. lifting now with the weakness in investment. How do you respond to the decline, the seven, eight-year decline in productivity from people that say, look, it's easy, Ted, we spend smart guy. The, the capital deepening, the capital investment, it went abroad. Essentially, we took our investment and shifted it in a new globalization abroad. Is that true? There's some of that. I think if you look at what's happened with productivity in the U.S., a lot of the tech equipment that drove the tech boom in the 90s was made in the U.S., and now very little of it's made in the U.S. That does damage that. But on the other hand, a lot of the productivity enhancements that we've seen previously has been companies, service sector companies, right. retail companies implementing tech <clears throat> advancements. You don't have to make it in the U.S. for it to, to work. You just need more dynamic economy. You need more investment. You need the best stuff being put to play in, in place to give it to workers right. to, to work with. Buried in your brilliant report, and again, folks, we will not send this out. Contact Morgan Stanley for Mr. Weisman's good report. We protect the copyright of all of our guests. In your report, you make clear you can take the disappointing productivity and run it forward to sub-2% GDP growth. What are you going to write in six months? More of the same? Yeah, as I said, we, we have a, a long-term GDP estimate of 1.5, which, which assumes productivity gets up to 1, and you have 5.5% labor force growth. But, wow, I mean, we've just seen productivity undershooting that for so long and getting worse recently. That so it's not 1.5, it it's actually even less. If productivity doesn't pick up to one, which has been our baseline assumption, and here we are running at negative the past three quarters, and the five-year trend has been 0.5, um, I still think if we can get some better capital spending over a period of time, you can you can get that up somewhat. But it's, it looks optimistic, and it and relative to say the Fed's estimate at two, that's building in a one and a half percent productivity trend implied. That starts to look almost implausible the longer this productivity bus continues. How do we get capital spending up? Is it just a matter of confidence? That's a big part of it. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's a tricky problem, but it's, it's been so bad for so long, and here we are late in the cycle, and, and we've seen in the U.S. three straight quarters now of negative investment. So it's not like it's turning around uh, imminently here, but um, I think a good starting point would be continued easy monetary policy, um, not slamming on the brakes early from the Fed. Fiscal policy would be helpful if we get some infrastructure spending would be a boost there, but just something, and it's hard to say what it would be, but just clearing this cloud of uncertainty that's kept businesses so so cautious for so long. Uh, Ted, I want to, you know, focus really on the relationship between central bank, I guess, QE or negative rates or whatever, you you know, central bank easing and the impact that has on capital spending. There's a line of thought that says the, the more central banks do, the more CEOs say, oh, you know, they're looking at something that's much uglier than I'm looking at. I'm not going to spend anything. So how, how what's the fine line between the two? Well, I guess there is a confidence issue there, but but I think I mean I, when I look at what's happening with estimated neutral real rates versus what's happening in the economy and, and where the setting of policy is, we've seen as you know the past three quarters in the U.S. declining investment, we've seen rising savings. The neutral real rate is is where the savings and investment schedules cross, and Chair Yellen has talked about it being near zero. And if you look at the past year, we have declining investment, rising savings. If anything, it seems to be falling right. along with the decline in productivity. So uh, I, I think it just reflects that the stance of monetary policy, as more Fed officials have been right. saying, is just not as easy as you might think looking at a near-zero Fed funds rate. Ted, one of my three or four great speeches of this crisis was Edmund Phelps of Columbia University on dynamism to the Bank of International Settlements, what seems light years ago. 
Ned Phelps is looking for the new new. Mark Andreessen is looking for the new new. Ellen Zentner is looking for the new new. And on and on and on. For Ted Wiesman, what's the new new that's going to bail us out? Uh, well, I, I think I think the one area where it's, it's been a little weaker recently, but we have seen periods of decent R and D growth in the U.S. economy is the one area of investment that's been pretty strong in this post-crisis period. So, you know, the hope would be, and it's hard to say where it would come from, but we'll get some breakthroughs that'll that'll drive productivity better, and, and companies will actually be willing to invest and and spend on that. Uh, where it comes from is hard to is say. Is the cloud a productivity friend or enemy? Well, I mean, if it's, if it's enhancing businesses' productivity, it's helpful. It's, it's, uh, if you can take an existing capital stock and make it more efficient, that, that should add to your TFP. It may depress investment if companies don't need to buy more servers and, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, yeah, that's an area. You can look at areas like that. The problem, is though, is a, a critical point that, that Professor Robert Gordon has made is that some of these changes we're talking about are, are at the margin. I mean, going to the cloud from a going from, a, from writing on paper to a hard drive is a big change. Going from hard drives to servers to the cloud, that's kind of more incremental. Ted, you said something, okay, we're post-crisis. Are we really post-crisis? Could you not argue that we're still in crisis? We're still in the eighth year of crisis mode. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a point that the Fed has kind of wavered on. They've been talking for some time that what they've called persistent headwinds from the crisis are the reason why the neutral real rate is so low. But it's, you know, we're a decade past the peak of the housing prices bubble now. Um, it's becoming. I think it's becoming harder to just write off the weakness that we're seeing as, a, as still a lingering post-crisis effect. There are some lingering post-crisis drags on mortgage credit availability, et cetera. But these trends in falling neutral real rates and, and that, have, that have been associated mm-hmm. with the weakness for same productivity, those have been ongoing for decades. And it's not necessarily just a, it may have been exacerbated by the crisis, but <clears throat> demographic shifts, saving shifts, investment shifts have been lowering neutral real rates for 30 years now. And it's, it's right. still ongoing. Tell me about, and one final question, all of this is hinged off of hours work, an aggregate American hours worked. And there's a lot of dynamics there, folks, which are too many moving parts for Friday. But the bottom line is, Ted, the idea of hours worked is going up, 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 isn't it? Yeah, well, the problem is that, you know, we're getting, we got 1% GDP growth basically over the past year, and we've had negative productivity growth. So all the growth in output that we've seen has been from higher uh, hours work contribution, which that you know you run out of steam eventually on that when you get to a five percent employment rate or falling. You you can drive excess labor input, excess hours work to give you better growth for a while, but once you get to a full employment stance and then your demographics yeah. are supporting modest growth in the labor force going forward, you better have productivity or your overall GDP number. Just simple arithmetic yeah. on labor force growth plus labor productivity growth equals GDP is going to be depressed. Thank you so much. Ted Wiesman with Morgan Stanley, working with Ellen Zentner and the entire Morgan Stanley team, absolutely definitive on the many moving parts of productivity. It's at minimum a three-ratio dynamic of capital, labor, and total factor productivity. A lot of moving parts in there, a lot to think about, and we'll make this a theme after the stunning report in the recent quarters of disappointment in American productivity. That was brilliant. This is Bloomberg. You're going to love this, Francine. I don't know if you've ever met Dana Telsey, but Dana Telsey is is lights out on New York fashion and 
American fashion and global fashion. Dana Telsey with the Telsey Advisory Group uh, wrote absolute must-read stuff for Bear Stearns a few years ago on retail. Dana, good morning. Uh, Good morning. Terry Lundgren closes 100 stores. I believe it's 14% of capacity. You in your fiber are Bergdorf Goodman from your family. Are the Bergdorf Goodmans, are the Macy's of the world, are they dinosaurs? I don't think they're dinosaurs. I just think they're reinventing themselves. I think this reinvention is essential given that instead of consumers going to the store, the store is now going to the customer. And that's what it's it's basically making everything topsy-turvy in terms of ization, localization, personalization, customization, and regionalization. That's what stores are figuring out. But Dana, when you say they have to, I mean, they're not reinventing themselves, but they have to change. It means that actually Definitely. if they don't change quickly enough, they are, mm-hmm. I mean, is there a danger that the, some of these guys go bust or they, they just stop sales? I think overall we've seen sales slow at a bunch of the retailers. We've seen apparel being weak. And one of the changes that you just saw with all these department stores reporting earnings is that apparel picked up. There was strength in apparel, whether from Macy's or even whether to Kohl's, and I think that's encouraging. I think that what needs to change is that we're seeing some of these retailers overall work with vendors to figure out how do we – make goods be able to sell at full price? How do we give them newness? How do you be exclusive and be appealing at the same time and be able to earn a profit? I I look at this, and I mean, just as as one example, this weekend, Francine has got to, I'm going to pronounce this in Italian and kill it, Francine. She's got to buy the Dolce Gabbana, Giacci Corda and Brocato, Stampato, Concolo, and Policia. I killed that. And it's only like 2,400 euros or $3,000. Are we really going to buy the quality Francine Lacroix buys? Dana, are we going to buy that online? I think we're seeing that happen already. I think consumers are, are comfortable buying online. And I think one of the things we're seeing companies do is figure out how to make the window of online similar to what their store window looks like. Yeah. I mean, and what you see happening today is the multi-channel shopper, Macy's has said it, can, be at least, can spend at least three to four times what the single-channel shopper spends. Dana, first of all, Tom Keen gets an AA++ for his Italian pronunciation. Um, I was talking to a high-end, well, actually, he's the former Ferragamo CEO. You know, they make the nice shoes. And he was telling me the uh, the reason why also online will increase is because of terrorism concerns. Is that fair, or does that seem a little bit far-fetched? A little bit far-fetched, but listen, we're still, look at the tourist numbers. The tourist numbers, whether it's overseas or whether it's here in the U.S., there is something to be said for certainly when there's tragic incidents, people stop going to one area and going to another area. And we, we see that happening. I think safety and the right. ability to feel safe is extremely important. What happens to, uh, you know, the flagship stores? Do um, a lot of companies still need that? Because if I'm spending 3000 4000 or even $500 on something, I need to make sure it fits properly. And you're seeing flagship stores in cities continue to, to open. You're seeing occupancy rates continue to be very high. You're seeing lease mm-hmm. costs for those flagship cities continue to be high. And that's also like what it is with A-malls, where there is terrific traffic, high income levels. We're not seeing any, any slowdown there. What you are seeing certainly is tourism's impacting outlet centers, right. where outlet centers got a lot of tourists. But that's for now. We'll have to see what happens over the next two years. Dana, help us here. 
Robert Burke folks will be joining us here in the coming days uh, is, is, well, Dana Telsey, when I look at Michael Kors and Coach basically saying to a big department store, we're going to pull away. Is that the new trend where we're going to lose the big store fashion stuff and they're going to be going to their individual stores to brand and sell? A lot of brands want to control their own destiny. They want to be able to minimize the impact of the promotions and the friends and family events. These brands are still going to be selling into department stores. They may not be selling into the wide extent of department stores that they had been, but certainly department stores need the brands and the brands need the department stores. Okay, I like that idea, but if I look at at what Francine's getting this weekend, the Dolce & Gabbana jeweled toe, post sandal in patent leather and printed brocade, only $1,145. Paid for by Tom. Yeah, of course. But but Dana, you, you know, you and I kid about this, but wither luxury in three years, where do you perceive Madison Avenue or the Manolo Blahnik store at the top of the Harrods, where are they going to be 36 months from now? I think 36 months from now, there's only a finite number of department stores that can sell those luxury goods prices and items. You're definitely going to see an enhanced online presence, and I think the flagship city stores, they'll continue to invest in, and they'll continue to get good good traffic through those stores. Do we not have too many retail stores in general? And I'm Good not question. talking about overexpansion, but there's just too many. Sometimes there's a retail overload. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been that way for a long time. Yeah. If you think about it, there really hasn't been any many new concepts that have emerged over the past few years. What we've seen is you've seen like Dollar Shave Club, you've seen Warby Parker, you've seen Lululemon and Peloton. The space of active is taking share because so many people, what they wear to work, they were on the weekend, they wear to the gym. Yeah. Lifestyle today yeah. are different than in the past. It's a much more casual lifestyle. I think what we'll see going forward, we're going to see some of these online retailers, they'll emerge and they'll grow larger, and some will go away. But that's where some of the creativity is now. Where are you in this bear market? I mean, Dane, at the end of the day, you're telling people to buy, hold, sell. Within that, Michael Kors is down 50% from this early 2014 peak. Is is that a bear market opportunity for Dana Telsey, or is it something to stay away from? I think overall the valuations of many of these names are appealing. And when you think about the consumer space, the consumer space is a little bit like the back half of the year is when it all counts. When you think of the inflection point, we've called the department stores the bridge to the second half. And that bridge to the back half, look what you saw. I think when you think about the handbag space, look at Coach, where for the first time in two years, it got positive comps. That bridge to recovery, you can continue to see that happen over the next few quarters. Francine McCaw in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. Robert Burke with us as we look at global retail and, again, a moldy retail report with lower yields uh, this morning. Robert Burke in Hong Kong, and I've already been dazzled by this, and you know this cold. I've got seven places to buy Prada. And, I mean, I mean, Francine, there's four on the Hong Kong side. There's three on the Kowloon side. And, I, I you know, the Alexandra Shopping Arcade and, you know, Second Street and Austin Road elements and all this. Robert Burke, what have you learned about the international expansion of brand names over the last decade? 
Well, I think what we've learned in the last few years, as in of two years, is that the, the brands are re-looking at their physical brick-and-mortar footprint, their retail stores. You know, they over-expanded in China probably far too early. Uh, when you look at something like Hong Kong with seven, eight points of distribution, the brands are really looking at, at um either closing down stores potentially or really limiting the product offer. You know, overexposure for the for the luxury fashion industry is, is always the kiss of death. And too much availability can really work um, against them. So what we're seeing is they're focusing on these really key retail stores and building up their online and investing significantly for their online operations. Robert, I, I wanted to come back. Okay, first of all, Prada is so last year, Tom, but it's last year because actually there's, you know, it has to do with design a little bit, Robert, but it also has to do with pricing, right? So you mm-hmm. can, and, and there was, I guess, what, in the last four or five years, a um, move done on purpose by a lot of the luxury fashion houses to be more desirable by becoming more expensive. Are they now too expensive? And does that turn people off? Well, that's a very good question. What's happened is the consumer has become far more educated. So they go on the Internet and they know exactly what the global price should be. Um, say three years ago, four years ago, it was almost acceptable to have a 20, 30 percent higher price in certain markets because they, they couldn't get the goods and, and they depended, the brands depended on them wanting to buy immediately. And today there are too many options. So what's happened is you've seen a leveling of prices globally. And um, while some prices may be high, that's not the, that's not the end all be all for luxury brands to grow. In fact, they have to be more consistent globally or the customer becomes um, distrusted. Right. But so which are the brands that are actually winning? You mentioned Gucci, the creative director and the new CEO turned around the company in six months, but it was because Mm -hmm. they put radically different clothes out there for people to buy. Uh, Different clothes, different shoes and different handbags. So, you know, that's a product. um, That's the result of of product and and marketing. You know, Saint Laurent, Yves Saint Laurent, um, it continues to see strong sales. Um, This is a a brand that that is um, um, still feeling the effects of its creative director, but also a repositioning and redistribution of product. The other brands we continue to see perform are Laura Piana, which is now owned by Vuitton. We see um, Vuitton's new collection of watches and jewelry, and we're seeing an uptick in jewelry as a whole globally. And um, not in watches because of um, uh, governmental um, uh, issues and, and new laws, but in jewelry across the board globally, we're seeing an uptick. And that's always one of the first signs you see. Um, other brands, Celine continues to perform. Um, uh, Bulgari has had had good sales. Um, Fendi um, is solid. Now these aren't huge jumps in sales, but but in this type of a market, it's an increase, in, and the brands will take the increase. Um, the FT has a wonderful article on Grace Wells Bonner, who's an up and coming thing, and you know it's the usual fashion discussion, Robert, that you live. It's all about people at the end of the day. Are you optimistic about the corporate titans of fashion finding the people that makes Francie Lacroix want to go in the store? I am. You know, I think that the, there's a consumer that's always going to want 
uh, good product. More than anything, what they want today is newness. And I think it's, again, because of the amount of exposure that they have online. And they become um, bored before it even enters the store. And that's an issue that retail has to deal with and design houses have to deal with. But they're looking for newness. And so I believe that the, the people that are heading up these brands are very attuned to that and are putting the right creative directors in and the right business people and the right retail strategy and roll up. Should some of them go bust? Should we close some of the fashion houses down? There's too much stuff. Well, there. you know, it's, it's um, the fittest survive. And I think that that will probably end up happening. I think that there is a general feeling that there are just too many goods. And maybe there's houses that have been around because of history and reputation, but yeah. they're not keeping up. And so in, uh, the customer is ultimately the decision maker on who's going to survive and not survive. Um, Robert, you're going to be hit three times this weekend from people you know. Should I buy the stocks? Retail's in a massive bear market. Ralph Lauren has gone from, oh, I don't know, 180 down to 100. They're all, all the charts look the same. Are you a buyer of shares of the retail world, world you deal in? Are you brave enough to buy your I'm- I'm feeling in the last week because of the earnings, I'm feeling more optimistic than I've felt in the year and a half, two years. Now, am I going to go out and buy? I think I'm going to be watching really carefully. Robert, generous of your time this morning. Thank you so much. Robert Burke, for years at Bergdorf and with his Robert Burke Associates. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And we are honored to bring to you in this August of turbulence, as Chairman Greenspan would say, Daniel Jurgen. There are too many things to talk about. We will get to oil. But I think I want to parse this out, uh, Dr. Jurgen. It's a broader talk on geopolitics, then get to oil, and maybe even then get to something we could define as a new commanding heights, one of your iconic uh, uh, books. This last weekend, I had the great privilege of attending Williamstown, Massachusetts, in a moment of silence in front of the um, grave of James McGregor Burns, who passed away a few years ago, one of our great arch historians. Jim Burns would talk about leadership and transforming leadership. How do you perceive this presidential campaign? All of us are reeling, whatever our politics, from this campaign. How does the author of The Commanding Heights Look at the commanding idiocy of this campaign. Well, it is very disappointing. And, of course, when you're outside the United States, as I've been a lot in recent months, people scratch their heads and say, speak about leadership. The U.S. is supposed to be the leader, and yet what is going on in this campaign? And, you know, we've been the leader on trade. We've been the leader in terms of security. We've been the leader in financial and all flows and system. And all of that now seems to be... Uh, up for grabs, and we're not interested in the role we've played from which we've benefited so enormously. There are 41 million jobs in the United States that are the result of foreign trade, more than one out of five jobs. You don't know that from the campaign. Nobody talks about that. Oh, let's go outside and go to Francine Lacroix in London, who is living that outsider view of what we're doing in America. Francine, Daniel Jurgen. Uh, Dan, great, great, great pleasure to speak to you because you're, of course, one of uh, the the people in the world with the best insight on foreign policy, on anything to do with oil. What exactly does U.S. energy policy look like in 10 years from now? 
Well, I think it looks pretty confusing. I mean, on the one hand, you can see the trends of where it's going to go, that uh, we're going to see over the next 10 years, two-thirds of the new capacity that's added in electric power will be renewables because of the uh, considerable uh, tax incentives and support and regulations that are there, and that seems to be the decisions that people are making. But I think if the U.S. remains in its current track, it will be one of the big three in terms of world oil. You know, you talk about OPEC, but we have to think about the big three, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Russia. But uh, but it will also depend upon what kind of policies are put in place in the United States. Uh, if some of the policies that were talked about in the primary campaign in terms of restricting shale oil development in the United States uh, actually were put into place, the biggest beneficiary would be the oil exporting countries because the U.S. would be back to importing a lot more oil. Right, but at the moment, the, the U.S. exported quite a lot. They were at a record in May. Can they continue exporting oil? If, if they, I mean, can they, how big a contender can they actually be in this well, market? Well, think about the U.S. in terms of its overall production. The U.S. still imports a lot of oil, but a lot, mm-hmm. lot less oil than it used to be. We can export crude oil to kind of balance our markets because of the different grades in, in oil and our refining system. But we are seeing U.S. oil production is down 1.2 million barrels a day from its peak of April 2015. U.S. is still a big crude producer, mm-hmm. but the impact of lower prices is certainly felt uh, in terms of uh, the drill bit. We've got two conversations going right now. One is the demand optimist. Edward Morris at Citigroup is a demand optimist. Adam Siminski, EIA, a demand optimist. Do you think demand will be there to support price? We are a kind of, I would say, a modulated demand optimist. We see demand. You got to go, like Francine. You got to go to Yale to say something like that. <laughs> what is a modulated? It isn't a modulated. <laughs> it means it means not over the top, not wildly bullish about it. But 1.1 million barrels a day, roughly, in this year and next year, in demand growth is what we see, primarily because of a weaker uh, world economy and also because a lot of the price effects have already gone through it. But if you take that out, five or six years, the world's going to need five or six million barrels a day more oil by the end of this decade. And then there is the $64 trillion question, where does that oil come from? Right. And the answer is? The answer is it comes from, you know, you've heard of the G20 and the G7, Well, it comes from the G5, which are the Gulf oil producers. Uh, and then it comes from the United States and it comes from Canada. And this is going to be a surprise because we've just worked, reworked our numbers. We think actually some of it's going to come from Russia, that Russia could add mm-hmm. five or 600,000 barrels a day of supply by 2020, which you would not have thought a year ago, but they've really right. readjusted their, their cost system. I, I want to switch gears here. We would talk oil for two hours with you, but there's so much going on in the world, Dr. Jurgen. Your first thoughts on this new United Kingdom. You opened Commanding Heights with Clement Attlee in the shock and awe of another time and place. Is it the same shift going on now in Britain? Well, we have Francine on the phone. She's uh, living it day by day. But I think, uh, uh, first of all, this shows the danger of holding referendums. Uh, uh, Ken Rogoff wrote brilliantly about that. I mean, exactly. And uh, this was, you know, they already had a near-death experience with Scotland and yet went ahead with this. And it was striking, even though the polls were so close, I think almost no one believed that it would actually pass, and yet it did. And so it, it, it introduces enormous, you know, uncertainty for the next few years in terms of what gets... Uh, Uh, How does this relationship get unraveled? On what basis? And it can only be contentious. Dan Juergen, on a broader discussion on an August Friday, 
I want to go back to a chapter in Commanding Heights, the new rules of the game. And in that, you've got an engineer in 1876, Sir Sanford Fleming, who's sitting there bored out of his mind at a railroad station, and he basically comes up with a way for technological progress to move forward in the late 19th century. What's our new rule of the game, and what's the technology that's going to save the day for our horrendous productivity? What he did, and it's a great metaphor for what you need to do as you have a global economy is that all trains ran on local time and so there was no uh, train would leave Pittsburgh and the timetable would not match up with Philadelphia because high noon was at a different time and he missed a train in Ireland because the time that things and so he's really the inventor of time zones and it couldn't just be one country or one man it had to be an international agreement uh, to, to create them and there was a big argument not surprisingly, between the British and the French, whether the meridian should go through London or whether it should go through Paris, but London won out. But uh, And I think that's for a global economy. You need agreement on rules. Uh, what we have now is an attack on the rules, an effort to uh, dismantle the rules. And, uh, if you, and that's what's so upsetting and scary to the rest of the world. And, you know, we could see the October surprise in the financial markets could be if you're seeing an election that's very close and not not certain what's going to happen, what's the role of the United Mm -hmm. States. And that could uh, have deep reverberations around the world, because I think the rest of the world is still kind of in disbelief looking at this campaign. Tom, only on surveillance do we talk about time zones and back to the future. Yes. uh, Because we have the resource of Daniel Juergen. Yeah, exactly. Dan, what does that mean? If you were to choose a time zone that you're most worried about, and this goes back to the fear that you're talking about in the U.S. election, it goes back to the fear of Brexit, who's getting it right? Well, I think that uh, most things are going in the wrong direction. I mean, certainly in terms of trade. If we don't have the, this trade, the Pacific trade deal, the biggest beneficiary is China. And those countries in the region will say, okay, U.S. has turned our back. Our future's got to be with China. So we would be really damaging ourselves in a very big geopolitical way uh, because we would be saying, well, we're actually not pivoting to the Pacific. In fact, we're, we don't want to in- increase our, uh, our engagement. At the same time, I think we run this risk, and Tom alluded to it before. It's not a risk. It's happening of a society that is over-regulating too many rules of the game uh, you know, in a bank that one out of every five employees is a compliance officer. I mean, we have low interest rates, very low interest rates, and yet why are they not having an impact? Well, I think it at least behooves looking at what's happening to lending, particularly lending to small businesses, which is constrained because of uh, new definitions of but risk. Dan, you're, you're describing a, a, a pretty scary environment, Right. And an environment and a world that would become a lot more dangerous. Is there one person that can help us get back on track? Well, you know, one person probably, uh, depending, you know, a president of the United States would probably be the single most important person. Uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel has played a very important role in stabilizing the world economy and in Europe. But she is uh, somewhat wounded now by the Uh, problems associated with uh, that mass immigration. To bring Brexit forward, and it's a complete mystery about the timeline and such, do you see the institutions in Europe that will be on the other side of the Brexit negotiations? By the institutions, you mean... Brussels? Brussels. Well, I think that, you know, the challenge for... 
you know, Chancellor Merkel was very interesting because she said we've got to look at this from the viewpoint of the German people and German business because Britain is an important, very important market for German car makers and so forth. And so there are many calculations. I think the overall message from Brussels is that we can't have a velvet divorce as they had in Czechoslovakia because then that will invite the French or uh, other countries to exit as well. We've got to make it tough, well, but uh, on the other hand, not shoot oneself in the foot and, for instance, and not take forever to do it. You, 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 this is We're going to rip up the script, Francine, as we want to do here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Jürgen has now taken two shots at the French in this interview <laughs> today. Give us well, a, one is from the 19th century. So. <laughs> okay, but we'll, we'll, we'll count that. Francine's right behind you. They're, they're a very shot. resilient people. Help me here with France after Hollande. I can't figure out who the leader is. Help well, me. it's it's a very you know weak government. His support is not there, and of course, France has this very frightening problem of uh, of uh, domestic terrorism that they have yeah. that is troubling them and has greatly strained the resources of the state, as well as bringing tragedy to a lot of people. Yeah, Dan, let's remind ourselves we're only 11 months away from the French presidential election. Does Marine Le Pen, very far right, uh, extremist, wants out of the euro, you could describe her probably as racist. Does she actually have a shot of becoming president or at least making it to the second round? Well, I think she does to the second round, particularly uh, with the domestic turbulence around uh, terrorism and so forth that uh, the minds have changed and I think people will be looking at Britain and how what, what the nature of its of its exit is. When's the next book? That's all anybody wants to know. Well, my goal is to have it done by next spring. Okay. That's Could you make it book. shorter? Absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be no longer than a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Jurgen, tweeter. characters. With IHS, of course, and the author of uh, uh, numerous books. I, I think it is time for a reread of Commanding Heights, which is uh, still a jewel uh, a few years on. I'd I just say I think it's very relevant to looking exactly as to what's happening now and yeah. what things are going to look like after January. Yeah, well, there, there it is from Dr. Jurgen. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.